welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Guru Seth Upathy. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. This is a curb your enthusiasm moment right here. Yes. Like, <laughs> we know you're a fan. Are you a fan as well, Scott? I, I feel like the the older seasons were more of these, like, we, we got a great idea. We're going to build a story around it. And the later ones are more like kind of story arcs, like being yeah. around like the coffee shop yeah. or, yeah. you know, built around a central story. So yeah. it's, it's slightly different, but it's kind of like changing times. So you kind of see that across the entire in, uh, entertainment landscape, really. I'll give you one example before we pivot. Um, I, uh, I, I told my wife uh, there was this chocolate and I was like, no matter what, don't give me any more. No matter what. Do you remember the no matter what episode, Scott? Like, no I don't. What. I don't. <laughs> he told uh, Susie to like, or no, Susie told him like, no matter what, don't give me any more cake. No matter what, don't get like, no matter what. <laughs> and then he like laid down the law and she got pissed. And so it's a whole episode about that. So <laughs> I think, I think my favorite like individual moment was uh, they were over at Susie and Jeff's house. And I think the daughter, they, they, it's a big party. They're always having a party. Right. And they have the daughter up and they say, like, okay, sing us your little song, little Susie, whatever her name is. And like, she starts singing and like, it, it's visible that uh, Larry doesn't like this. He's like, all right, all right, good job, good job. <laughs> Trying to get her to shut up. It's just glorious. And everyone, of course, calls him an asshole and all the all the stuff. But it's like I've been there in my life. Just like just make this end. <laughs> well, well, Guru, perhaps I can introduce you real quick so people know who you are. Guru, and, and tell me if I'm saying this wrong. Said the pathy, is that correct? We got it. We got it. All right. He's a PhD, uh, founder uh, and CEO of Fair Now AI. He spent the last 15 years focused on analytics and AI technology and human capital, previously worked at McKinsey, as well as a senior executive at Capital One, where he built a people analytics technology and strategy function. And he recently left Capital One to start FairNow, whose mission is to help companies demonstrate that they're built, how they're building and deploying AI technologies responsibly. But maybe we could start with just tell us about your time building a function at Capital One. That's that's where I became familiar with you. It seems like you all built sort of a juggernaut over there. Really impressive team. Do you want to talk about that at all, Guru? Yeah, thanks. Uh, first of all, thanks for the kind introduction, uh, Cole. Good to chat with you, Scott. Good to chat with you as well. Yeah, we. Uh, I joined Capital One early, early 2017, and and coming in, I had kind of my own kind of aspirations and vision for like melding what I thought was something that had not been done before, which is bringing science data, technology, and just like real deep thinking to the the talent space, right? And I felt there was an opportunity to, 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 to blend the best of both worlds. Um, and Capital One wasn't initially on my radar, but when I started interviewing with them, I thought they'd be the perfect home to kind of try out this vision because I don't know how, many, how much you guys know. I don't know if you guys have a Capital One credit card in your wallet, but... Um, but they're an incredibly data and technology-based financial. Because initially I was like, oh, it's a bank. You know, like, I don't know if I really want to go work at a bank. Um, but when I, you know, through my interview process, and this is why interviews are super important, guys, by the way, because this is an HR topic. You know, when, when you do interviews, interviews are both ways. I'm sure you guys, mm -hmm. you know, say this often, but like interviews are going both ways. And they really impressed me with how they interviewed me, right? The type of questions they have, the rigor, the analytics, the data, 
in the problems that they asked me. And so I, th that caught my attention. I was like, oh, this isn't a typical interview process. This isn't a typical bank. And so when I realized kind of their origin story about how Capital One started, how it was all about kind of data-based decision-making and analytics-based decision-making, I was like, wait, that's what I want to do. I just want to do it in a different space, not in lending. I want to do it on hiring. I want to do it on promotion, right? Like, uh, but the same kind of DNA. And so I tell people all the time, it was a great match from a DNA standpoint, right? What I wanted to do is something that, you know, they wanted to cultivate as well. And I had tremendous support above me uh, to go kind of, you know, uh, enact this vision and, and, and bring in the right type of talent, bring in a new type of talent. A lot of people I, I hired and brought into that organization were not people analytics folks before necessarily, or even HR folks, but they had like some really cool set of skills that were relevant. You know, a lot of organizations or, you know, people in functions are talking about dashboards or this sort of thing. Like what, what separates what you were doing at Capital One from standard practices that we hear about in people analytics? Look, we built dashboards along the way too. So don't get me wrong. Of course, like of are, course. You know, it, like it solves are, a problem. Yeah, absolutely. It solves a problem and it's an important uh, step. But I think a couple of things that I think differentiate us. One is the vision that we had was just really ambitious. Right. It was just really okay. ambitious. And so I think that got people excited. Right. I don't think you can get, no, again, like I said, dashboards are important. Right. But if I come in and I'm like, hey, guys, I'm going to give you a couple of dashboards, it's just different. Right. It's just a different type of conversation. It's a different level of resourcing. It's a different level of influence. Right. And oh, so if I'm like, hey, guys, imagine this. And I painted a picture. Whereas, like, imagine a world where you're getting real time data on your teams, on your organizations. Imagine a world where you're kind of interacting with your HR data and your HR insights through natural language. Imagine a world where we're able to help you um, hire talent differently because we have advanced technological assessment tools, right? Like, so when you start pitching things that way and start, you know, imagining a vision that's much broader, of course, along the way, you know, to get to New York from, from DC, I still got to go through Philly, right? Essentially, but you're getting further, you're painting a bigger vision, you're painting a broader vision. So I think that's one thing. And then the second thing is the influence we have from a strategic standpoint, it, you know, I was in conversations with the CEO of Capital One on talent topics, mm -hmm. right? And that's not something, again, and, and, and Cole, I brought this up at um, El Rayo when you had asked that question around what's the future of people analytics? Uh, where do we go from here? And what I would love to see in this space is organizations follow that blueprint and have the opportunity with a head of people analytics or some kind of role like that is leading talent strategy, right? How do you shape how hiring gets done? How do you shape talent systems? How do you shape uh, TM, PM? Like how do you, like they don't necessarily have to own these things. Someone else kind of can operationalize it and so on and so forth. But being partners with the CHRO, potentially even the CEO or the COO uh, to actually set these systems in place and strategize about this, I, I, I think that's tremendous. Uh, that's the kind of influence we wanted to have and we we got eventually. Scott, do you want to report to the CEO? <laughs> I am the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, what, what's some of the work, Guru, that you did that you felt like you were most proud of there? I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. The first thing we did is uh, when I got there, the business did not trust HR data. How so? Well, that's what we had to figure out. We didn't know why. We're like, yeah. what's going on here? And we had to dig in. Is it because the data quality is bad? Is it, you know, what is going on? And we we finally uncovered what the thing was and we fixed it, right? So what it was is, uh, think about the definition of attrition, right? When you're just talking, everyone's like, oh, oh yeah, gosh. I know what attrition is. I know what yeah. that is. But then 
you know what, if you're an analyst, you know, once you start co calculating that metric, <laughs> that numerator, that denominator, you can define it like 10 different ways, right? And so what we'd have is we'd have, you know, one person in our team defining it one way, another analyst over here defining it another way, and they put it on two different decks and it, it would look like Cole's attrition would be 8%. Uh, and another guy would be like, it's 8.5% and it would show up in a deck in an important meeting. And they're like, wait, these numbers don't match. So again, that's what they saw. They saw that and they're like, I don't trust HR's numbers. And then, so we had to like unwind and be like, why did that happen, right? And so we built, we reorganized the team and, and how we did analysis so that we had a common source of truth an inter an intermediate data model that then allowed everyone to build off of the same set of calculations and the same set of data. So that was a big step, I'll say. And that happened early on in the first year, Cole. And what that does did is that got us in a virtuous cycle because then people started trusting our data. Then they started trusting the analysis that we start, you know, that we were doing. And then from there, you build credibility to do more ambitious things. So that's one. Just very quickly, the other things I, I'm really proud of is we started to be able to innovate and change the tools that Capital was using to hire talent in some of their most important job families, their business analysts and their software engineering job families. And why this is such a big deal is Capital One had done this this way for the last 25 years. This was like their baby. They'd done it this way forever uh, and, and they felt proud about the way they were doing it. And we, our team went and showed them, hey guys, this isn't working. So think about whatever it is, whatever organization you're in, and you're telling someone that is kind of proud of the way that's already happening Hey, this is, you can do it better. We can do it better. And so we had influence like really senior folks. This went, all, you know, all the way pretty high level to say, hey, we can do this better and, and we did it better. So those are some examples. You know, I, I, like, was there anything that you were doing at Capital One that kind of sparked the inspiration for Fair Now AI? Or was that just kind of a read of, you know, there's a lot of change going on in the world right now algorithmic decision-making seems to be really on the rise. we got to do something about this, you know, kind of thing. Like, and I know you even told me before, I think you even dropped out of college and started a startup at one point. So this wasn't your first time just saying, hey, maybe now's the right time to strike. I don't know. Talk to us about that journey. Yeah, no, great question. Uh, there were actually two things that, that I saw that caused me to do this. One is Capital One is in the financial services industry, the banking industry, right? And I like to say banking and financial services is like 20 years ahead of HR in a couple of ways, right? One is just in terms of sophistication of using data and technology and all that, but also in terms of regulations, right? Like if you remember going back, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys remember the financial crisis and then going back even further, but there's like laws around lending. Who can you lend to? You got, you can't be biased in your lending, right? Like you have to be protective of your data, your customer data, like all of this stuff. Finance has been solving for like decades, right? And I could tell, hey, this is going to come to HR. This is going to come to the regulations are going to come, the data privacy, the data security, but also the use of data. Like all of these things are going to come. So that was one observation I had. And one of the things I noticed, Capital One is awesome at risk management when it comes to the models that they use in their lending side. They have, all, they have a ton of people, they have products, they have solutions that they use to be well-governed on their lending models. And I was like, wait a second, but HR is not. So HR is using models and they're not well-governed on you know, necessarily the models that they're using. So that was point number one. Point number two is I started seeing companies, external HR tech vendors coming and pitching us. And they would be like, oh, we're AI for this and we're AI for that. And I was like, oh, really? 
And my team, again, me and my team were sophisticated enough where we could really dig deep and ask tough questions. And we realized two things, either they weren't really doing AI or they were doing stuff that we <laughs> thought was just not good practice, right? And so you combine these two things and we thought there's a real need where it's kind of wild, wild west right now in HR technology and it's going to change and the laws are going to change, the governance expectations are going to change. And there's a real need for HR organizations and HR tech vendors to be well managed and be well governed on the models that they're building. And so that's what led us to, to, do, to do this. I love that. People coming in and be like, well, we got uh, linear regression, so we're AI, so why not? <laughs> but <laughs> Scott, sometimes it wasn't even that. Oh, really? I mean, just... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes it was, just like, it was just calculations, you know? <laughs> oh, we, we, we summed up two numbers, and therefore we came up with an algorithm to add well, things up. You guys joke about this, but that's actually really relevant to the New York City law that's going on. Because, yeah. I mean, basically it's saying any kind of calculation, calculation. is AI, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Do you do, Did you have a point you wanted to make there, Scott? No, I mean, like Guru, like uh, you, you did a great presentation at Tal Reos on this New York City law. And I, I am not terribly familiar with it. I don't know how many other people are. Can you just like give us an overview of it? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, what are some of the implications of it, too, that we might be facing? Yeah, it's really interesting. Like, on one sense, I'm annoyed by the law. In another sense, I think there is a positive from it. And I'll, I'll talk to you guys about that. But just tactically, it did go into effect July 5th, right? So after many multiple revisions, feedback, all that kind of stuff, it, it finally did go into effect on, on July 5th. My blunt view of it is I have some problems with the law, right? And uh, I'll share a couple. One, they define ADTs in just a weird way. In one way, it's kind of broad. In another way, it's super narrow, right? Um, they, they, they talk about kind of substantially assist in decision-making. Like, what does that mean, right? That's just going to lend itself to a lot of confusion in, in, in my view. Um, so that's, that's kind of one issue there. Another issue that I have a problem with is publicizing. You have to publicly report your findings. To me, that is just a terrible idea. And, and the reason for that is raw fairness group comparisons are misleading. Yep. You just, I mean, oh gosh, I've studied this for so long. You got there's so many double clicks and triple clicks and quadruple clicks. You got to go down to really understand if you're uh, if you have fairness or unfairness, right? Mm -hmm. And any time that once you put, hey, we have um, the impact ratio sixty six percent. No one's going to read past that. No one's going to read past that. And it doesn't matter how many caveats you put. It doesn't matter if you put an explanation report attached to it. People are just going <laughs> to run with that number. People are just going to run yeah. with that number. And that's just not fair. It's just not the right incentives that you want to create, right? And so I- and Isn't that kind of just like the sign of our times though? Is that simplicity always wins over nuance and it's stupid, but it's what's what's going on. Well, that's why I'm worried, uh, Cole, because of that point. Like if it, people are not, people are, just want to run with their perception, their worldview of things, right? And so if they have a thing for a company and they're like, uh, I want, you know, I think that company's not fair. And, you know, then they're just going to use whatever they can to like uh, support that view. Right. Well, yeah. Like think about what the, from the company's perspective, like on one hand, we could use AI technology and perhaps we get uh, disparate impact. We have to report that information or we could use, oh, I don't know, human judgment, which we know is not as sophisticated, not as reliable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and not report it plus get who we want in the door. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and I, I've got an article coming out probably by the time this podcast is live with uh, a friend of yours, Scott Jackson Roach, uh, about oh, just nice. this point of like, it's about weighing the merits of human decision-making versus automated mm-hmm. decision-making. And there's this baseline assumption here that if we just removed all the algorithms, we could get back to the good old days of human decision-making. It's like, <laughs> those were never the good old days. Like, I don't know what you guys were talking about. Let's remove the science from hiring science. <laughs> the word I always use is counterfactual. And what counterfactual means is what would have happened otherwise, right? And so exactly, anytime someone comes and says AI is biased, and they want to take it out. I'm like, what's the counterfactual? The counterfactual is we go back to a world where humans are making decisions. And that is, it's been shown not to be an incredibly wonderful outcome on a whole host of dimensions. Uh, not to get way off tangent here, but I have the same issue on um, issues like uh, standardized test scores, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Like this has been a huge debate. And I don't want to get into well, it's the, kind of the same principle. Yeah. I don't want to get too into the politics of this or anything like that. But like, if you, if you, uh, if you look at it, like the SATs, Sure, there's probably some issues of bias around kind of these standardized test scores. And I know the college board and others are, they work really hard at like trying to minimize that and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But if you get rid of that, what's the counterfactual? Recommendation letters? I mean, how worse? I mean, that to me is like 10 times worse. No, Guru, we get to go back to good old human judgment. You know, like it, it's in I mean, recommendation letters, right? That's what that's that, that's what's going to be in the package. I mean, exactly. nepotism. Yeah. 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 Well, Guru, you wrote a really excellent article about understanding the New York City law, which we'll we'll tag in the show notes. I think it covers some of the high points of what you've mentioned here. One of the things that really kind of grinds the gears about it, and I think um, I'll, I'll link to it as well in the show notes, was something that Charles Handler put together. He wrote something about basically the New York City law is kind of trying to subtly overturn the uniform guidelines of selection from the EEOC. And those have been considered the gold standard. I mean, we learned about them in graduate school. I've practiced them in the real world and doing selection. They're really good and they're really fair. And this is things that, you know, really smart people have considered for a long time. It's been legally adjudicated. And so it got me thinking about this notion. Like, are we really starting to kind of be governed? Like, we're not like a a country or a world anymore. We're going back to like a city-state form of governance where, you know, like Sparta and Athens, you know, they control their own respective territories and New York City law governs all of us now. Like, I don't understand it's, this. This doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think there's, man, you got you got a lot of that in that comment. So I'm going to take this in parts here. So the first part, I, I, I know what you're saying, right? Like all the work that has been done around validation in particular, and I know you got deep expertise in this call and uh, I was actually talking to Keith Sonderling about that. And, he, you know, we, we were agreeing, right? Like there, the EEOC and like all these rules that have been established over a long period of time around like what, you know, what is bias, what is fairness and around validation in particular, right? Validation is very important. And this goes to the point I was making around nuance, right? You can have differences in outcomes if the validation behind it is justifiable mm-hmm. and, you know, validated, right? Like that's the science behind it, Right. And this doesn't take any of that into account. So that's what I meant when I was saying this, the, the double click and the triple click that you need to go into. That's the validation part of it. That's the deeper analysis and the validation behind it. That is, as, as you guys have been taught in IO psychology, that is the right way to do things. And this doesn't take any of that into account. So again, I'm in complete agreement with you. Complete agreement, right? So uh, I, I don't have an issue. The part that I will then challenge you on, because I know you guys like challenges on the show, is 
this idea of, look. Do we, are we known for our debates? <laughs> <laughs> it's like everybody just throws up the white flag immediately. No, I'm not ready for that. So here's where I will challenge you. This notion of like, hey, the city state, no. To go a little bit into history here, that's who we are as Americans, America. We're a country, we started out as a bunch of states. And for anyone who comes from abroad and tries to figure out this country, they get really confused because most other countries are very top down. They're very kind of central government heavy and you know federal laws and the states are kind of have weaker power, right? And that's not how we are here, right? The states yeah. have incredible power. These are things being debated, not just around bias and fairness of AI, but around abortion and around like really complicated things of like, hey, who gets to set this stuff? So that's the part I would push back on is like, hey, that's just how we've always been. That's our DNA in this country, Cole, is like having those debates between what's federal versus what, what do states and localities get to decide? Oh, I totally yeah. agree with you on that. It was, it was super confusing a few years ago. I think we covered it on the pod. Like when Colorado, I think was the first state to start requiring pay ranges, be in job yes. descriptions and even for remote jobs. And that was like super confusing because you're like, your company's in New Jersey or something. Be like, do I have to put my pay range because yeah. somebody yeah. might apply from Colorado? And yeah. all that did really is give, you know, a bunch of employment lawyers jobs, which is, you know, <laughs> it's fine. It's whatever. But it's like, how do you deal with conflicting kind of right. ways of adjudicating laws when the laws don't necessarily reconcile with one another? Well, they don't yeah. reconcile with each other. Plus, you, you got another layer of like organizations, which are either national or multinational, and you got to like essentially go to the law that is the most stringent, and that becomes your base of operation right there. Well, this is where it gets into uh, again. I don't know how much you guys want to go down this road, but like uh, the commerce clause in our in our constitution is very much around this point, right? Like when there is some kind of commerce across states that affects different locations, then the federal law you know, can supersede yeah. or whatever, right? Like that's the point. It's literally trying to solve this confusion in a sense, right? Uh, Cole and Scott. And, and so one other area where this becomes an issue is international trade. Again, a topic that I studied, but like to your point, Scott, like that is an issue, right? Like different countries have different trade policies with different other countries. Like there's literally infinite permutations of like what that could be. And so if you're a business, you're just like, oh my God. God, how do I figure this out, right? And so, again, that's something they've been trying to simplify and sort through. That same logic is going to apply when it comes to kind of laws around data governance, AI, oh, yeah. like all of this is going to come out. Because you're right, Europe is going to, at the end of the day, Europe and the US just have very different philosophies and cultures around this kind of stuff, right? Like they're way more harsh around data privacy than we ever will be, in my opinion, right? And so we're going to have these differences. Yeah, I mean, we've been dealing with GDPR for what, you know, 15 years now, something like that. And it's, it's fine if it's over in Europe, but we can kind of mm -hmm. handle that from a you right. know U.S. centric sort of standpoint. But when we have, you know, different laws in individual states, it becomes much more complicated. But like for, for, from like a broader like AI perspective, uh, be it privacy or, you know, application, et cetera. Where do you if you had a crystal ball, like where, where do you yeah, see yeah, it headed? Yeah. Where do you see it exactly. headed? This is my view. Uh Look, I think there's going to be a patchwork of, of regulations, right? I just think that that's just, um, yeah. again, going, going back to the U.S., that's just how we work. Like, California and Texas are not going to agree on mm -hmm. how to regulate this stuff, right? It's, they're just not. It's like we have different taxes in different uh, jurisdictions. And so I think there's going to be different regulations. That being said, I do think there's going to be some federal 
uh, guidelines. The, uh, the White House has already put out a, um, a blueprint on, on, on responsible AI. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, who we're working with, they've already put a much more detailed set of controls and policies and principles around this stuff. And I think that wherever we end up with, I think that's going to be infused by what NIST comes up with. Um, and then I think what we're going to end up with is some set of standards, right? So if you guys are familiar with SOC 2 compliance for InfoSec, right? Yeah. You've probably heard of that. That At the end of the day, look, there's, there's GDPR, there's CCPA, there's other things, but then the InfoSec is a common market standard, is a SOC 2 or ISO mm -hmm. standard, right? And so I anticipate that's where this will go. You'll have some patchwork of regulations. You'll have guardrails and guidelines from uh, federal government. And then you'll have a market standard that's infused by like someone like NIST. If you're a company, uh, I think you'll really care about those standards because your customers will ask you about those standards and so on. There's a really, a wise man, I won't quote, uh, name him in this uh, conversation. Uh, Was it Jim, me? But... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. He had this really interesting insight and I've been thinking about it since where he said, companies don't care about regulations that apply to them. They care about regulations that apply to their customers. Oh, I Why thought you were going to say their competitors. So I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> saucy. <laughs> but this, I thought this was interesting because he, he, his point was the regulations that apply to them for the most part, not everything. Some of them are really harsh regulations. So, you know, it is what it is. But for the most part, they're the cost of doing business, right? They're just like, look, I'm going to do what right. I'm going to do. And I'll ask for, you know, forgiveness later kind of thing. But if it affects my customer and my customer is worried now and I might lose my customer. That affects my top line. And I thought that was, a, and he's done some research on this to kind of, you know, back this up. And I think that's what's going to end up happening. Where again, these regulations will be there. Companies, I don't know if you've noticed this, very few companies are doing the audit in New York City. I don't know if you know this. And I yeah. think it's because they're just like, look, let's just wait and see. Let's just wait and see. You know, let's just wait and see. Let's see how it pans out. Let's <laughs> see where it goes. But if their customers start asking questions, that's going to get them to move much faster. Yeah, they're reading the tea leaves. They're like, hey, maybe this thing's going to be superseded or something at some point. But uh, I don't, Scott, do we have a do we have a confusion matrix for Guru today? We do. We'll do uh, five rapid fire questions for Guru. You, are you prepared? Guru, you like mentally prepared for this? I've, I've been waiting the confusion matrix, man. <laughs> OK, what's the first thing you do when you get home from work? Well, I work at home now. So how do I answer that question? I mean, it's, it's a good conversation. Like, this is more of an existential question. Yeah. <laughs> I need something. I don't know if you guys do. I need something to separate home and work. Like, because my mind is yeah. always, and this is going to maybe connect to the, I don't know if we're going to go to the Charles Vidal story later on, but it's it's part of, uh, I, I'm very absent-minded and my, my head is always kind of thinking about stuff. And so I need to, to be present with my children and my family and my wife. Like I need some kind of separation. That's where actually the commute, not a long commute, but a short commute helped me like 15 minutes kind of disassociate from what I was thinking about and get my head in the game for my family was actually going to help. With the working from home, that's actually tough because my wife thinks I'm at home. I'm like literally standing in the kitchen, but my mind is a million miles away. So that's been a challenge. I mean, like maybe the confusion matrix is just like one question because I mean, I think this is like a great topic we haven't really discussed yeah. at length. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's so true. Like you, it, it's hard to disconnect when you're working from home. Like if I'm at the house, like I'm working in the bed, you know, which is <laughs> terrible for sleep hygiene, right? And there's no way, there's no stopping point. There's no starting point. You just, you're right. just doing. Right. 
had this weird experience like right when the and we mentioned this in probably some of our early episodes on the podcast but right when the pandemic started to happen and I, I used to hate my commute I would at the end of the day yeah. I was working from home and I'd just go get in my car and drive to nowhere <laughs> just yeah. like yeah. I know that sounds crazy but just sublimating it, it the helped. urge and so like I'm curious just like what do you do guru to kind of get that that yeah. closure at the yeah. end of the day. And I would love for you to tell the Charles de Gaulle story too, if you if you want to tie those two together. It might be it might be a good segue. So what I do actually now is we just moved, we built a home over the last 15 months. Um, just really fun journey. I know it's not often fun to build a home. It can, it can go wrong, but we had a great experience and we built a beautiful home and we're in a new neighborhood and right behind our, our lot is like a forest. And so now what I'm doing, and it's got it's got it's got a pathway, it's got a, a walkway, and I just spend I do a loop, and I walk around for 20, 25 minutes, and I come back. And by the time I'm back, uh, my head's in a good space. So it's very similar to your drive, going for a drive, uh, Cole. So uh, very very similar there. Uh, the connection point here, the story that Cole was mentioning, is uh, I'm in my own head all the time. Uh, my wife comments on this. Uh, it, it takes a bit to get me out of my head and I'm very absent-minded. So just as a simple story to segue to Charles de Gaulle. So one time I uh, went to meet some friends at a restaurant, came out of the restaurant, all four of my car doors were open. That's, I just left them open. I just had no idea I left them open, right? It's just well, kind four of- doors, Four doors though, four doors. That's, that one, that's, that that's pretty strong. I've done, I've done one or two before that time it was all four. <laughs> I mean, like that, that's strong. That's impressive. That's three doors yeah. that you didn't have to get out of to- <laughs> I can't so, even finish. Like that's pretty silly. <laughs> so, so that's my thing. So in 2005, I um, was doing my PhD. I did a had a summer program in 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 France. Uh, was taking French. I landed in in Charles de Gaulle Airport, um, and my French was still obviously pretty pretty basic. And um, this is again 2005. We didn't have phone, you know, iPhones and stuff back then. And so I yeah. uh, had my luggage after after uh, got it, picked it up from baggage plane, went to a payphone. That's what we used to use back then, and <laughs> called my host mom and said, "Hey, I'm here." And she didn't. I didn't realize she didn't speak a word of English, and she just went 100 miles an hour in French. And I was like, "Oh my god, what did she just say?" So again, red eye, complete confusion. I'm like, what is going on here? I don't know where I'm going. So I, of course, being absent-minded that I am, I left all my luggage right by that payphone and just hopped on the subway. Care, you know, cares can be uh, heading into downtown Paris. Realized at some point, hey, I'm kind of light-handed here. That that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and realized I didn't have my luggage with me. So I was like, all right, I need to go back and get my luggage. So got back on the train, went back to the airport. And as I'm walking towards the airport from the metro, there's like hundreds of people standing outside the airport. I'm like, what could possibly be going on here? And I start making my way through and there's people that are, you know, cursing, they're pissed off. They're like, my flight's going to leave. Like, you know, people are getting really upset. I guess it's been like half an hour. And then I like got close enough where I could see through the window, like eight, you know, dogs, you know, cooking, drug sniffing dogs, police officers with like, you know, guns and everything around these two suitcases next to a payphone. And I, my heart just sank. I was like, holy shit, that's, that's, my, that's my luggage right there. This, this is exactly what they warn you about, right? <laughs> like, if you see unintended baggage, notify someone immediately. <laughs> if you yeah. see something, say something, right? Kind of thing. <laughs> so, like, and remember, this is 2005, guys. So like 9-11 wasn't that long ago. And there were some, oh, yeah. atta- some attacks in Europe that's either that summer or the year before in Madrid, there was a bombing. And in like some other place in Europe, there was a bombing. 
And so this was just like, every place was just like heightened around this stuff, right? And so I finally try to get to the front and this guy's like, no, no, there's a bomb in there. There's a bomb in there. You can't go inside. Oh my <laughs> yeah. Guys. yeah you, <laughs> you're never getting those bags back. They're going to blow those things up before they give them back to you. Like tiptoeing between the SWAT team and like the canine unit. Like, yeah, okay. ah, I'm just going to grab a bag. So suffice to say, I had a lot of nasty stares. A lot of people pissed off at me. And the funniest part was when I got to, finally got to my host mom late, late that night, she, the first thing she let off was, can you believe they shut, someone shut down the airport? And I, I, just didn't, <laughs> I, I, I just didn't have the heart to tell her who, you know, what are the details on that story. So. Oh yeah. That's, like, how do you explain that? Oh my God. I love that. Well, Guru, do <laughs> you want to join us for the uh, nerdery? I love it. I can nerd out anytime. I went on an Alex Pentland roll. Like he's one of my favorite authors. And like, I just went through Google Scholar and started checking it out. And this one who, who is that, Scott? He is a professor at MIT. I don't know if you'd call him a network analysis guy. I think he calls himself more like social physics, but he uses all sorts right. of metadata to mm -hmm. analyze the social network. He's got a great book called Social Physics. Highly mm -hmm. recommended. It changed how I think about data interactions and how people operate. It's, wow. it's just absolutely fantastic. But uh, he uses like all these sort of like data sources to understand how people operate and how they behave. So I, I'm, I, I would love that social physics. All right, I'm looking. I'm social right physics. It, it's easy read. It it's a pack full of information. It's absolutely wonderful. What's the name of this article? Uh, Unique in the shopping mall uh, on the reidentifiability of credit card met metadata. So large-scale data are transforming how we work and live. So we know about uh, map directions and Netflix movie interactions, um, recommendations rather. But these data may not be as private as we think, especially when they're de-identified and or sold to third parties. And credit card data, especially, as you know, this guru working for Capital One, uh, this data is regularly sold to third parties for credit scores or fraud, verification, this sort of stuff. So they took three months of credit card data and they essentially found that even when it's obfuscated, four transactions is enough to re-identify 90% of individuals. Uh, even when the data is made more coarse, so you know, aggregating it to various levels, uh, 10 interactions, 10 transactions is enough to re-identify uh, almost everybody. Wow. Uh, women tend to be more identifiable from this information wow. based on where they shop and when they shop. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's an odds ratio of 1.21. Uh, but just because there's no name and phone number on this data doesn't mean it's necessarily yeah. private. And th this isn't a new article, but uh, I, th I think it, it hits home for a lot of things that we do and mm -hmm. uh, how our data is going to be used in the future for sure. I didn't realize that this is what we were talking about because I, I remember coming across this a few years ago. And the question I always had about this is not whether de-identified data can eventually be identified because of the mm -hmm. number of transactions it takes, is could you decode whole databases at scale using this methodology, or could you only do it for like one person? Like, would it take you five hours to do this for one person, or could you run an algorithm and would it de-identify whole hundreds, if not millions, of people all at once using this methodology. Think about it. Okay, so so that they they're essentially saying like we know that someone made a, a purchase here and they made a purchase there and we can mm -hmm. essentially match them up. But think about like in an organization, say like you got a data set and it's just a list of variables and it was like 
health data. So like uh, heart screenings and like all this sort of stuff. And you need to know their date of birth, you know, their gender and like whether they've had a flu vaccination or whatever. And say you had a list of people's names plus their gender plus their date of birth. With just those two things, I imagine you could re-identify 95, 98% of individuals in the company, right? Mm -hmm. So even though you have no PII information, yeah, it's an idiosyncrasy of data science, really. Mm -hmm. Like you can re-identify people fairly easily with just a couple key bits of information. Because this has always been my question or criticism is like, I'll talk to vendors or other companies and they'll be like, oh yeah, we did identify everything. So you don't have to worry <laughs> about privacy concerns. And like, I'm pretty sure there's methodologies for getting around that fairly simply. The, but the big question I've always had is, could you figure it out for every single human being in the data set all at once? And I'm not sure I, I know the answer to that. It sounds like you could do it fairly easy if you have certain pieces of PII. Yeah, but maybe like if it's just credit card transactions and credit card transactions alone, I'm curious how difficult it would be to able to do that at scale. I, I I don't know. I don't know what other bits of information. This is a rather short article, uh, but where I thought he was really going to go is like something he talks about in other cases, which is like essentially tracking. Once you know someone's say obfuscated credit card number, then you know every transaction they made. Then you can track them to every location. Then you can track, you know, their spending habits and you know that person made that purchase, which um, most time I wouldn't care, but some things I don't necessarily want you to know. And there's a couple of interesting things about this. First, I'll start off with a joke, which is like, maybe we should all just go randomly shop in random places that we never do just to throw <laughs> all of this off, right? Like I'm going to go eat at a place I never normally eat at, or I'm going to go, you know what I mean? Just to like make it a little bit harder, but maybe there's a, a stochastic terrorism that we've brought exactly. up on the podcast before. <laughs> Exactly. Introduce some stochastic nature to the data. That's right. That's right. Um, but I think, Scott, you started going in the direction that my head really always goes on this stuff, which is around when it comes to data privacy, what do I actually care about? Yeah. Right. Like, and one of the things I think as Americans, we've realized through kind of the, 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 the whole debate around Facebook data and all this stuff is like, I just don't know how much Americans care about the, their data privacy. Right. Like, uh, these companies like Apple, man, Google, they, they know, they know everything. way more information about us than you, we could even fathom, right? Because this is, it's their job. Like they literally spend hours yeah. every day thinking about how to track, how did, what information can they get? What data can they get? How can they uh, target people? Like that's uh, with, with, with kind of personalized stuff. Like that's their business. That's what they think about all day. And we don't. So they have thought about stuff way more than we have. And they're doing it. And so we have not really pushed back as a society, in my view. And so there's a part of me that's like, look, the average person doesn't care that much. And then the point comes to like, what do you care about? What does Cole care about? What does Scott care about? What do I care about? Like, do I care if someone knows where I shopped yesterday? Not really. So what, what do I care about? And it's worth kind of getting into that level of the conversation of like, what kind of things are we worried about here? My viewpoint on this is it goes back to the point from earlier about simplicity versus nuance. Is like the argument you just made for why this is creepy is way too nuanced. We need something simple to get people behind it. It's like people yeah. are going to see all the naughty stuff you've bought unless yeah. we do this. And the people are like, <laughs> get rid of it. <laughs> is there a generational difference here too? Like our older, you know, uh, people in society more cautious about this sort of thing or like right. newer younger right. people like like i know everything is out there i know that everyone can see everything plus right. you know i get these added benefits from google or ways uh -huh. or 
Apple, because I get better recommendations, this sort of thing. And should we care? I I don't really know. Exactly. I think that's a good point. The generational difference is important. And then also, what's the value prop, right? If someone is giving you a value prop, if Google Maps, I I love Google Maps. I'm not getting rid of it. So I'm probably going to do what I need to do to just keep using it. And yeah, they can, they'll, they'll know where I've been, right? And I'm, I'm okay with that, right? So what are you getting in return is always going to be part of that equation. I mean, it goes back to the whole, like, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product type of argument. And so you are getting some kind of value from it. And that's why you're using it. And it doesn't have a cost, but it, it has a cost. And I'm pretty firmly in the camp that, you know, people should have the ability if they at least they if they want to to be private but mm-hmm. i would think privacy by default should be the settings in most products even though it's not yeah, um, opt-in model yeah yeah opt-in versus opt-out yeah or like, like, something like hey, you get additional features if you're willing to share your data stuff like that right like that's something you actually do in the b2b space a bit right where you're like hey if you're willing to like if you're willing to share your data with us and allow us to ingest your data into our overall model then we can give you benchmarking or we can give you this or we can give you that, right? I mean, that's why we got, we uh, early on in the podcast, we had a, a, a guest on Renee Davis. We were talking a lot about like Web3 because that was the thing I was so curious about Web3 is that you were going to be able to monetize your data, right? Rather than them just, you know, hoovering up all of your data and then them selling it and making money off of it. You actually own your data and then you could monetize it. Now, I know all the like Web3 stuff seems to have blown up recently, but, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I think the premise is still there. Somebody's going to figure this out. I don't know if it's going to be the Web3 people or somebody that comes after it, but I, fundamentally, it seems like, you know, who you are and your likeness is something that you should own into perpetuity unless well, somebody's willing to pay you for it. This is a great point. I want to connect it to a couple of threads we've already talked about, which is around one is around AI. And the other is around kind of monetization and, you know, uh, of, of these things. So here's the next level, right? I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there have been lawsuits around, um, around some of these uh, at large language models, right? Where the large language models depend, uh, you know, and they train on all of this corpus of digital data, right? And that digital data, they access pretty freely, right? A lot of it is open source. A lot of it's out there for free. And, and and where it wasn't for free, they, they probably paid a little bit to access the data or whatever, but like they accessed your data, Scott, your data, Cole, my data, and like, you know, everyone else's data without which there is yeah. no LLM, right? And so what is your ownership stake in OpenAI? What should it be? Do you, should you get some kind of annuity, right? Like uh, yeah. from their, some kind of dividend from their profits? Then they pull up yeah. the ladder on the back end as well and don't let you use their data. I mean, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, Scott, but I've completely quit using OpenAI to edit anything that I do for that exact reason. Because essentially, I'm just giving them everything I write and putting that into their training model. You just continue to give them more data. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And so I I just quit doing it just for based on principle for that reason. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So to me, it's, 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 it's almost less about privacy. I think privacy is important. But like I said, I don't know if Americans have really cared about it. To me, it's more around ownership, right? And that's the flip side of the privacy point. Who owns it in terms of monetization? What, Data bill of rights. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. To bring it full circle, Alex Pentley does have like a great section on uh, this sort of like data privacy, what we should do with it, opt-in okay. modeling, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend it for anyone that's interested.
Well, I think um, it's a great transition, Scott, into the the next topic about the Detroit Lions. Do you want to talk about that? Because I mean, this is this is all within the same kind of sphere of influence. <laughs> Absolutely, like it's great, man. And this is a TikTok video, by the way. Uh, I saw it. I was. I it was short enough. I clicked on it when you put it in your email, and it, that was fascinating. But go ahead. I want to know more about TikTok's like algorithm. Like, how the hell do they keep everyone so engaged? Like, they, they got the teenagers by the hair for sure. But uh, the Detroit Lions are using AI at uh, Ford Field there in Detroit. Uh, so they 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 noticed they have like massive people lining up at the gates and they they everyone crowded into one gate. But uh, using a series of dynamic signage and emailing, uh, they get people to distribute to other gates. Obviously, get better flow of people into the stadium. This sort of stuff. But they're also using a tool called a Crowd IQ to analyze fan behavior, so they can detect fights in the stands by the density of opposing fans and beers sold in a section. Uh, so obviously deploy more cops to these places. They can also place ads on video boards when fans are most likely to uh, look at the screen and they can also target it based on age, race, gender, et cetera, in specific spaces so they can charge more for these uh, ad boards because they are targeted. And, you know, just increase the overall fan experience by sending, say, the mascot to a section that has a bunch of children in it. So, you know, make everyone happy through uh, use of AI. Really fascinating. I had one thing, because you left out a really critical point, because a lot of the stuff in that video seemed brilliant. I was like, these are really smart people. But you left out the critical point, which is they were using facial recognitions like video software to analyze the crowd and whether or not they were watching the video board or seeing yeah. an ad. And I was like, okay, this tilted from being like good business to really creepy and dystopian. And they just kind of like plug that in there a little bit, like in that video, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then the other joke I wanted to make is like targeting fights in Detroit. I was like, are they just going to target the whole stadium? I mean, it's Detroit. Come on. <laughs> Who's fighting over a Lions game anyway? Like, yeah, exactly. There's nothing interesting going on in the field, so you got to start fighting. <laughs> so, take it either way on that one. So, no, in their defense, the Lions were decent last year. After they were, they were. I kid, I kid. Yeah. <laughs> the, the facial recognition is really interesting, though. Like, I, I've seen, like, obviously, San Francisco is having a tough time with, you know, uh, theft and this sort of stuff. I saw, I think it was a 7 Eleven has facial recognition software at the door it won't let you in unless you show your face and like you're um, ostensibly yeah. approved to go inside which oh because they would have tracked you if you had done something uh, exactly or something wrong before and then you could be excluded from that list it, exactly and like heaven forbid that information get shared across walgreens to cvs to uh, walmart to uh, whoever yeah. else you're not allowed to any business like a social credit score essentially it's a really interesting debate right like there are cameras everywhere now. It, it actually boggles yep. my mind. Like whenever I'm into true crime a little bit, I don't know if you guys are into true crime, but like it's kind of entertaining. And like one of the things I've realized, like following the stuff, is there are cameras everywhere. Like they will, like if a crime happens, they will like go through and like they'll like look at that location and all the cameras that are like in and around that location, and they'll collect all sorts of evidence. And I, I don't even know. I don't even know where all the cameras are. And so already we live in a situation now. There's yep. the one side of it that's kind of creepy. And there's the other side of it is like, hey, if that reduces crime, how do I feel about it? Uh, the only solution to committing a crime guru is to be completely ambiguously looking so that you blend in. There's no way like you're like a chameleon. Aggressively generic. Yes, well, aggressively. The most average person in history. 
I don't know if you guys. Uh, uh, I think so, we threw him off, Scott. <laughs> I, my mind like exploded with that comment, but like, <laughs> but I don't know if you guys are following some of this data. One of the things I I, I mentioned I, I love is geeking out on social social sciences. And so anyway, so the crime data. So there was a big thing where in 2020, 2021, crime went way up, right? And it was just like something yep. everyone was talking about. Crime went up. 2023 is looking like it's going to be back like similar to 2019, right? And I think there's a bunch of interesting reasons for this. One, just I think COVID just made us all, brought up the worst in all of us in so many different ways, right? Like being isolated mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. But there, to, to your point, <laughs> we were all wearing masks for a while. And when you yep. wear a mask, you are less able to be identified. And so you're like, that increases the incentive to go commit a crime because you're like, yeah, I'm wearing a mask. I can go commit a crime. Yeah, there, were, there so was a it, point in time that the only people that wore masks were bank robbers. You, yeah. know? <laughs> you, you inverse the social relationship. Absolutely. You were not allowed into a store without a mask on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now you're like, oh, no one knows if I do anything wrong here, right? So I actually think there's some really interesting, I think COVID was almost one of these fascinating sociological experiments that makes it interesting to see, hey, how do we behave in abnormal times? And like, what are the kind of the results of those behavioral changes? Social norms really broke down because like, hey, people just weren't on the streets anymore. And people were also cooped up. And I think you go stir crazy. You start driving to nowhere. Like, yeah, I don't have to work. <laughs> the bridge to nowhere, driving to nowhere. But like the other thing that was crazy is all, kind of also how we started group identifying ourselves based on like, okay, you can wear a mask in a crowded theater, but walking down the street, that kind of that's kind of weird. So we started judging people on like where they wore masks, how often <laughs> they wore masks. You know, it got really interesting. Alone there. in a car. Exactly. <laughs> Big auditorium, stadium. The good old days that I don't necessarily want to go back to. Uh, but exactly. well, maybe maybe we'll get to the last uh, nerdery topic. I came across this LinkedIn post uh, from the CEO of Portable, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But he was talking about what you should do if you were starting a data function at a company. He says for a thousand person company, but I really the advice in here was amazing. And I, I I had a lot of these similar thoughts, and I, I would be curious to kind of run this off you, Guru, because I know you've started some functions before in the past. He goes through five weeks of what you should do. But week one, for me, was like it in a nutshell. I was like, if you're just doing week one, you're on the right track. And I see so many people <laughs> who aren't doing it this way. He said, schedule a meeting with everyone in the C-suite, identify the top three data-related questions that each executive needs to answer and figure out a way to get them to answer with manual or automated data if they don't already have answers to those questions. And I was like, oh, this is like simple blocking and tackling. And so many people can't figure this out. He goes through week two, week three. There's really great advice in here. I I ask you to check out the link yourself. But from your experience, Guru, what did you think about this advice? Loved it. Absolutely love it. In fact, I use a different terminology. Uh, all the folks that you know were on my team will recognize this if they're listening in. But I, but I tell everyone, be useful. The first thing, be useful, right? Because you know you're a data scientist and you have access. Like one of the cool things about being a people analyst is it's actually a really cool job. You have access to such cool and interesting data that can give you insights that are just fascinating insights, fascinating insights. And so it's really easy to just run off in different directions and be like, oh, I want to study this, or I want to analyze this, or I want to study that. 
And you got to really squash that impulse. You got to squash that impulse. And so unfortunately, it didn't take, it took me a lot longer than a week. It took me probably like two months. And part of the reason is because I'm not sure even the executives know what they want sometimes. Because sometimes yeah. I'd go to them and be like, because that, that's how I would read off the conversation. I'm like, what do you want answered? And then they'd be like, oh, I want this, this, then go. And then half an hour later, I'm like, I don't think they answered my question, right? And well, so, so here, this is an important caveat, Guru, because I, I see a lot of people making that type of kind of footfall, which is they go in and they say, what people analytics data are you needing to answer your questions? And they're like, I don't know. Yeah, you know, yeah. what you need to ask them is like, what are the top three things you're focusing on right now? Right. right? And they right. know what they're focusing on. That's not a tough question to answer. And then it's your job as a people analytics professional to say, here's data you might have considered related to these three focus areas. That's and this right. is where your expertise gets valued. But I, right. again, I find so many people that are like, well, what are the analytics that you want to see? And it's like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to tell me. Yeah. Answer my questions. <laughs> yeah, I love that addition. That's absolutely right. But the, I, I think the broader point of like having them tell you what they are caring about, what they're prioritizing, what matters to them, and then being as useful as possible yep. on those questions. Now, here's the part two of it. And I haven't read the link and I don't know if he goes in this direction. Once you then do that three times, four times, five times, now you have a relationship, you have credibility, you have trust. And then mm -hmm. you can come back to them and be like, hey, Cole, I know this is what you're focused on, but I think that's the wrong thing to focus on. Why don't you focus over here? But that can't be the way, the place where you start. Uh, so I love, I love that point. And just building some social currency and putting yourself in the black instead of the red, you know, 100%. like that's, that's 100%. the key. I think yeah. that social currency is a really interesting point because there's two ways to read this. Like one is a single person coming in, trying to stand up a function from nothing. And this is yeah. a perfect plan. Go figure out from the CEO and like the senior executives, what they want to prioritize. Two, like say there's already a group, a bunch of data scientists, they just don't have a leader. You come in. What I'm not seeing here is like figure out your team's capabilities. There's no like understanding what your team is actually able to do in this, which like it sounds like in that second scenario, someone that just wants to go visit with the senior executives and not care about their actual team. In that case, I wouldn't want to work with them. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think he's talking about starting like starting a function at like a small company. Yeah. But yeah, I get the point that you're making. Like I think you're saying, I think saying from close to scratch. So maybe there wasn't an existing team there, Scott. Or exactly. That's how I exactly. So like I said, there's two ways to read it, but I love yeah. the aspect of just focusing on what will make the biggest business hit. And, and just to add one more point on this, because I think it's just so important that Brian Chesky, a CEO, founder and CEO of Airbnb, has this uh, quote where he says, in the beginning, do things that don't scale because everyone's yeah. always talking about scale, right? Yeah. How do you automate yeah. it? How do you scale things and et cetera? And absolutely, eventually that's important. But your first three projects, your first three customers, your first three things that you're doing, I don't know what the exact words that you use there for reading off that post, but like, it doesn't matter if you're using uh, technology, if you're doing it by hand, whatever, manually, not manually, just go do it and make that person want to work with you again. Yeah, first be valuable for sure. Guru, this is, this has been a really fun conversation. That I, I think we've covered a lot of territory and gotten very technical in some ways that we haven't done recently. So I'm yeah. super excited about this going live. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before I give you the final words, Scott, any final words for Guru? Guru, super pleasure to uh, talk to you again. Fascinating conversation. Uh, where can folks reach you if they want to reach out? 
Yeah, um, you can find me on LinkedIn um, and uh, we'll have something on Twitter soon, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when that happens. And otherwise, my email is guru at fairnow.ai. So um, feel free to reach out and uh, would love to say I enjoyed this. This is not, I knew this coming in. Uh, I've listened to you guys before. Not like a typical uh, kind of podcast. We, we talk about so many different things, fun stuff, serious stuff, all of that. And, you know, hope to do this again in person sometime soon, guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. You, you went Twitter. You're not even going threads. You're not doing the Twitter versus threads. <laughs> oh, man, thing. that's a whole other conversation we can have about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg yeah. and the cage mask. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Guru. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Guru Sathapathy. Thank you, Guru. Thanks, guys. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.